1964, singer Sam Cooke debuted the hit song, A Change Is Gonna Come. Now, my wife encouraged me to sing it, but I'm going to spare your ears the trouble. But the song, it captures the plight of the African-American experience in our nation. As racism has run rampant during the time of Jim Crow, as African-Americans have been oppressed. And in the song, there's just this anticipation of change. A change is going to come. Many of us have either heard the song, we've certainly heard the phrase or some variation of it, and all of us desire it. Because if you've experienced suffering and pain and injustice, if you've witnessed it, then you would plead for the very same thing, desiring for a change to come. The expression communicates that we don't like how it is down here, that we want things to be changed. You see, in our suffering, we constantly hear some sort of phrase that a change is going to come. People often say it. But the question is, how do we know? Saying it doesn't make it true. The phrase communicates words of faith. The question is, what is the basis of that faith? How can one say it and believe it and know it to be true? See, we must have a hope that is grounded in certainty. And Christians, only Christians, can actually say that a change is going to come and it be true. It is not true because we say it but it's true because our God has declared it. You see, we need revelation from God that a change is going to come. And we can be certain that it is because of God's character, that he is sovereign, that he is wise, that he is good, that he is faithful, that he is trustworthy. Beloved, in a world where we see pain, where we experience it, in a world where we see and experience injustice, we need revelation from God. And that is the foundation of our hope. And is that what we see in this morning's passage, where God speaks to Habakkuk, and his word is a word of hope. Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 to 5, please stand for the reading of God's word. The Lord answered me, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and like death he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. You may be seated.
in all seasons and in all times, we need God's word, especially in difficulty. And God has spoken. His word is a word of hope. And so the question for us is how do we properly respond to God's word of hope? And the passage teaches us that we are to respond in two ways. First, it teaches us that we are to wait on God. And second, it teaches us that we are to walk by faith. We are to wait on God, and we are to walk by faith. For this is how the righteous live. So for a little bit of context, the book of Habakkuk is written by Habakkuk. He's a prophet. And in chapter 1, we saw him lament over the destruction and injustice that has taken place in Judah. He prayed and prayed and prayed, and in his mind, God was not working. And so we see a lament where he complained to God and he accused God of his perceived inactivity. Well, in chapter 1 also, God responded, making known that God was at work and that he was raising up the Chaldeans as a reference to Babylon, who would be God's instrument of justice against Judah. Well, y'all, Habakkuk saw what God was doing, and he wasn't feeling it. And so he responded with another complaint. First, he complained about what, what he thought God wasn't doing, and then he ended up complaining about what God was doing. Saying, like, how are you use them, this wicked people? He was confused by the works of God and confounded by that very same work. So he concludes with the fact that he is waiting to hear from God, which brings us to our first point, wait on God. Habakkuk knew that he approached God sideways as he complained, and so he begins to embrace himself to be rebuked by God. Well, God responded. God didn't ignore the prophet. Instead, he heard him and lovingly responded to him. Look at what he said. Verse 2, the Lord answered me, write down this vision. God didn't rail or he didn't rebuke Habakkuk at all. Instead, his response was one of love. He gently responded with patience. God didn't scold Habakkuk. Instead, he showed him another vision. And, y'all, this is the thing that, like, really blew me away in my study. Because I would have assumed, like Habakkuk, that God was going to rebuke him because that's what I would have done. Y'all, even when my kids come at me sideways, I correct them. And so I would assume that God's going to do the very same thing to his prophet. If you have grown up in a black family and you came at your folks sideways, it's likely that you heard some variation of who do you think you're talking to? I ain't one of your friends. And so it could be easy to assume that God will have the very same response. But here we see God's gentleness, which causes me to praise God that he is not like me, that he's not like us. It's that he's compassionate. He deals gently with his people. 
And we ourselves know from experience because we have pouted over God's providence. Whether it's personal, in our very own lives, or things that is happening in the world, we have complained. And God didn't respond with smiting us. Instead, he was patient. He forgives. He extends grace. He comforts us. And it's because of the gospel, the fact that God is for us even when we complain against him and his will. In his love, he may correct us, but he never stops loving us. He doesn't cast us out, for he is a loving father. Here we see God's response. He tells him to write down this vision. God responded with a vision. He revealed more to Habakkuk. In the first vision, God made known what he was doing. And in the second vision, God makes known what he will do. You see, what he was doing in the first vision wasn't all that he would do. It was a fraction, but it wasn't the whole. As he is working out his purposes in the world, leading it to its appointed end, which is the uniting of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And not only is God working out that purpose in the world, he's also working out his purpose in us. As he is actively at work in us in the midst of working out his purposes in the world. Think about Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 when he says, For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Just as he is not done with his work in the world, so beloved, he's not done with his work in us. God, in his sovereignty, has revealed the future to Habakkuk, and he commanded Habakkuk to write it down on tablets. He says, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. The fact that he commands Habakkuk to write it on tablets communicates the significance of this vision. Think about what else was written on tablets in Scripture. The law. Exodus chapter 31 verse 18 makes known that God had the law written on these tablets. And here he is telling the prophet to write it on tablets, which communicates the importance of this vision. This vision was to be given to Habakkuk, but it's not exclusively for Habakkuk. It is a word of hope for his people and his generation and the generations to come. They were to read it to live in light of it and be shaped by it, for it was a word of hope. And here we see God, he's concerned with the perspicuity of the message. He says, clearly inscribe it on tablets. God desires for the message to be clear, abundantly clear, that it's not a riddle for only a few people to solve, but it is a message to be understood by all people. They were to read it, to get it, announce it, and live in light of it. This was a message to be clear so that it could infect them and give them hope. God is concerned about clarity. Clarity is important, especially of God's word, because it informs the mind. It impacts our living. It increases our love and devotion, and it bolsters our hope. And y'all, God's concern for clarity has not changed. 
The very fact that he's given pastors and elders to his church to study that we may exposit what God has revealed in his word. And we have the responsibility to study the show ourselves, to prove, to rightly divide the word of truth. That the saints may be built up, that love may be provoked, that hope may increase. We are to give ourselves to the clear and faithful proclamation of God's word, knowing that he would use it to edify his people. Because God's people need to hear God's word. It shapes our view of him and life. So God tells the prophet, write it clearly. In verse 3, he goes on to talk about the timing of the vision. He says, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. The vision is about the future. Here we see that God is over time and human history. He is over everything and knows every minute detail. He knows the beginning and the end and every detail in between. What this means is that he knows what will happen. He knows when it will happen. He knows how it will happen because he has decreed it. And what he has decreed, he will accomplish. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember what happened long ago, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. God says that this vision is about the end. The question one may wonder, like, what end? The end of Babylon's reign or the end of human history? And the answer is yes. <laughs> this vision is eschatological. It refers to the end times. But what's also included in this is Babylon's end. You see, the vision goes beyond Habakkuk's day. Beyond Habakkuk's, not just Habakkuk's day, beyond Babylon's reign and ruin all the way to the end of human history. And God, what this testifies is the very song that we heard growing up in VBS, that God has the whole world in his hands, that he has you and me in his hands, that he is carrying us to his appointed end and he will not drop us. God says that it will not lie. This vision won't lie because the God who revealed it can't lie. It is impossible for him to lie. Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill? God doesn't overpromise and underdeliver. He doesn't gas up any of his promises. He doesn't boost at all. His track record is 100%. Every promise made is a promise kept. And so, beloved, we don't have to be skeptical. We shouldn't be skeptical of God's promises. For he has given us every reason to trust him because he is faithful. Now, in God's love, he revealed that the vision won't be fulfilled immediately. 
that it will take time, but time won't change it. Look at verse 3. It says, though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Y'all, this sounds like a contradiction. Does it not? The very definition of delay means that something is late. And yet God says, though it delays, it won't be late. How do you reconcile this? Well, reformer John Calvin said, and my boy Mario Hoyle at D Group said the very same thing, that God is speaking from two different perspectives. In our perspective, from us, is delayed because his vision is taking time. And yet, from God's perspective, it won't be late. For he has determined the very time that his vision will come into fruition. For us, it feels like it's a delay because we're waiting, 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 and waiting. It feels like a delay because we have placed God on a timer, wanting him to operate on our timeline. You know, earlier, not earlier, but recently, we just celebrated Christmas. And in the Chapman house, one of the things that we like to do in anticipation for Christmas is we have these Advent blocks. And in the Advent blocks, every day leading up to Christmas from December 1st to December 25th, we read some sort of Bible story that points us to Jesus Christ. And every day we turn the block, saying that, man, we're one day close to he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And y'all, my son, Jace, he's a little bit older now, and he has some understanding of Christmas. And so he knows that when it's the 25th block, it's Christmas. He also knows that when it is Christmas, he gets to open a few gifts. And so one day, being smart as he is, he goes and he turns all the blocks, (laughs) turns them all. And he comes to us and shouts, it's Christmas, it's Christmas. My wife and I, we just laughed. And we're like, nah, Jason, (laughs) that's not how that works. (laughs) It ain't Christmas because you turned all the blocks and said it's Christmas. You see, for Jace, Christmas was a delay because he was waiting and waiting and waiting. And so he began to just rush it, turning, it's Christmas already. But for us, we knew that it ain't Christmas until it's December 25th. And, you know, how often do we treat God the very same way? Where we try to rush his promises, trying to get ahead of him. God, you promised this, and I want you to do it during this time right here, right now. Beloved, God doesn't work on our time frame. It's we're not over him. As if we get to evaluate his work and scrutinize his timing. Instead, he alone is God, which means he is over us. Which means that we should submit to his will. We should trust his timing and we should wait on him. Beloved, how are you handling the delay? Are you waiting on God or are you rushing God? God's timing is always on time. He's never tardy, not even by a millisecond. He is good, therefore, when he fulfills his timing, it's perfect. 
But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for specific things and for him to act in a specific way in a specific time. But it does mean that we should submit our prayers to him, praying like Jesus, not my will, but your will be done, which includes his timing. Knowing that as we wait for him, God is working for our good because he loves us. God's timing is perfect. Listen how Paul described the time of Christ's first advent. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. When the time came to completion, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The time of Christ's first advent was promised by God, and it was perfect timing. And the purpose of Christ's coming was for our redemption. As Christ atoned for our sins through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, it wasn't late. God will fulfill his promises in his timing. And this vision that Habakkuk saw, it is a messianic prophecy. It points to the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be fulfilled in his second coming. The author of Hebrews quoted Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, as we read it in the scripture reading. It says, For yet in a very little while the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. You see, the Christ who God promised to come, he has come. He has inaugurated the kingdom. He has inaugurated the new covenant through his death and resurrection. And as his people who are the church who are brought into his kingdom by faith, we await the return of our king for him to fulfill this promise. Through this vision, God is declaring that a change is going to come. Through this vision, God is making known that the wickedness that Habakkuk sees and a wickedness in our day will not always be there. That the injustice, the oppression, the suffering, the pain, even death itself is on a timer. That the very sands of the hourglass is falling. And as we feel the pain, and boy do we feel the pain, we know that trouble won't last always. And we know it because God has declared it. He has revealed it. And it is why we need revelation from him, because we won't know it apart from his unveiling. God has revealed it to us, and our response is the very command he's given, that we are to wait. He says, though it delays, wait for it. We're to wait. Now, the waiting is not unique for us in this generation. For God's people have always been marked by waiting in faith for God to fulfill his promise. Think about Hebrews chapter 11. Where we read, Abraham waited. Sarah waited. Go and read the passage. You will see that more and more saints have been waiting. Now we who are the new covenant people who are the church we're the first fruits of God's new creation. We wait for the return of Christ with great hope. We're to be a people who watch and wait. 
James chapter 5, verse 7 and 8 testifies to this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient in the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. You also must be patient, strengthening your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. And beloved, as we wait, God is actively at work in the world. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord does not delay his promises, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. His patience isn't aimless. In fact, as we wait, God is graciously at work saving the elect as he and we wait for the second coming of Christ Jesus. His patience towards us, we see that he's patient towards us, and our salvation is the proof. The very fact that he has saved us before Christ has come. And so we are to wait. Y'all, we ain't the only ones who are waiting. The Lord Jesus himself is waiting. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 13, says that now Jesus is... Sitting, he is waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. He's at the right hand of God, waiting to return to destroy his enemies and rescue his bride. That his people may be with him and that he may be with them. We are to be a people who wait. Now what's accompanied with the command to wait is the reality that suffering Pain, injustice will continue in this life until Jesus returns. Where we will ourselves feel and experience, but also witness the effects of life in a fallen world. People have cancer, disasters, destruction, oppression, racism, death. All of these things will continue in this life. And in this body of flesh, as we wait, the delay can be discouraging. It can influence doubt. It can even potentially lead to despair. So the question for us is, how do we wait well? How do we wait with confidence and an enduring hope? I would say we wait well by praying, going to the Lord in prayer, pleading his promises, confessing our doubts and our weaknesses, remembering his word, asking for grace to strengthen us in our weakness. We also wait well by being in the word. Y'all, if we are not in the word, then we will be hopeless. We begin to believe lies. But it's through the word that we're reminded of who God is, his character, his promises, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's through the word that we're reminded of the future salvation that is to come when Jesus Christ returns. His word gives hope because he is the God of hope. Romans chapter 15 verse 13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, we wait well by being in community, 
where we are encouraging one another with the truths of God's word and praying for one another. Or we are bearing one another's burdens and reminding one another that Christ is coming soon. We wait well by being committed to the corporate gathering. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Beloved, our gathering is a foretaste of what is to come. As we gather together and worship God, as we hear his word, as we gather and encourage one another, we are preparing ourselves and each other for eternity as we see the day drawing near. We wait well by living as kingdom citizens, being reminded that we are exiles to this land that our citizenship is in heaven, and we live as citizens of heaven, loving one another in our enemies, pursuing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly, and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that Christ will return and there is hope. Beloved, how are you doing with waiting well? How are you doing in helping other members wait well? As we wait, God is at work. He's at work in us. Isaiah chapter 40 says, They that wait on the Lord, he shall renew their strength. As we wait, he is actively at work. Beloved, waiting well, if we do it, we can have hope and joy and peace amidst hardship and sorrow and suffering. If we were to wait well amidst those things, it is a great evangelistic witness to those who don't know Jesus. As it catches the attention of those who don't know Christ. Wondering how is it that we can have joy and peace amidst so much turmoil. Provides us with an opportunity to give a reason for the hope that is in us. To point them to Christ. And not only that, waiting well is great for discipleship, for those who we are discipling, as it teaches by our very own example to trust God amidst our affliction and discouragement and hardship, to wait by faith knowing that God's timing is perfect because God is good. So we're to be a people who wait on God. And as we wait on God, we are to walk by faith. This brings us to our next point. I'll just be honest. This point is not nearly as long, okay? Verses 4 and 5. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays an arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, And like death, he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. Here is the vision. Verse 4. And we see because he says, look. The very command that he gave Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 5, where he reveals the vision, he gives the same command here. 
look. In the vision, it is a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And here he begins with the wicked and he gives, he describes them in seven ways. He says his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and like death, he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. You see, the unrighteous, they are consumed with self-exaltation. They look to, depend on, and boast in themselves. They prosper, and yet they are discontent. They have this insatiable appetite for more and for more. They have the mindset of John D. Rockefeller, who is a man who is filthy rich. And one reporter had asked him, like, man, how much money is enough? He said, just a little more. The unrighteous have that same mindset. They view themselves above all. They conquer, they capture, and they oppress, and they are deceived by their pride. God describes their actions. He exposes their sin. God knows who they are. He sees their deeds and their motives. And it testifies that they will be condemned, that they won't live. You see, in chapter 1, verse 17, Habakkuk wondered about Babylon. Will they continually slaughter nations without mercy? Will it persist? And here God gives an emphatic no. The unrighteous will not escape his judgment. Not the unrighteous who are in Judah, not Babylon, not Rome, not USA. All unrighteous will be condemned by a holy and righteous God. There will be judgment and this is a word of hope for people who trust in God, who look to him. He says, this is how the unrighteous live. This is how they are. And he gives one sentence on how the righteous live. He says, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Y'all, this verse is important. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38 is commonly referred to as the Reformation verse. As the reformer Martin Luther became a Christian by studying Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. As he was studying, before he studied, he couldn't stand the righteousness of God. As he was constantly confessing his sins to God. But then the Lord shone light in him, in his heart, and he began to embrace the righteousness of God as he learned that unrighteous people are declared righteous by God, not by their works, but by their faith. It was a watershed moment which sparked the Protestant Reformation. He says, the one who is righteous will live by faith. The righteous one will live by faith. And this faith is in God's promise of sending the Savior who has come. It is the very way that unrighteous people are declared righteous. By a holy God. Beloved, faith is the distinguishing mark between the righteous and the unrighteous. And that faith, that we place our faith in Jesus, it results in us being transformed by God's grace. 
to where we obey him out of love, that we want to reflect his his righteous character in our character. Here we see that one is not righteous on the basis of their good works, because they have a higher standard of morality. One isn't righteous because of their tithes and offering or their church attendance or their external obedience, obedience or even their parents' faith. A righteous standing before a holy God is solely by God's grace on the basis of one's faith in Jesus Christ. He is the promised Savior who came, who lived the perfect life, actively obeying every law, humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, where he bore our judgment as our representative, died and three days later resurrected from the grave. All who have trusted in Jesus, we're no longer seen as unrighteous, but we are declared righteous by faith, where his righteousness has been imputed to us. It is an alien righteousness, is what theologians call it, as the righteousness of Jesus, which is outside of us, has been credited to us because we've trusted in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 would say it this way. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And friends, if you know yourself to not be a Christian, I am glad that you are here. You see, righteousness is not by works. You may have assumed that the Christian message is do good, be better, stop messing around and God will accept you. Friends, that's just not true. The Christian message isn't about you doing better. For apart from Jesus Christ, we have an unrighteous standing before God. Instead, the Christian message is you can't save yourself. You can't make yourself righteous. You need someone to do it, and Jesus Christ is the only one. He died for sin and resurrected, and all who trust in him are saved by his grace. This message testifies that God is a loving and gracious God who is mighty to save. And I would implore you this very day to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. If you want to talk more, you can talk with any of our members after service. God makes known that the one, the righteous one, will live by his faith. It's not by works. And this truth is vividly displayed in the life of Abraham. Think about Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. As Pastor John clearly stated as he preached through the book of Galatians, the Christian life is one of faith in Jesus Christ. It begins, continues, and ends by faith. A saving faith is an enduring faith. Even as we read in Hebrews chapter 10. Now, one may wonder, well, what is faith? Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 said it is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. You see, it's assurance of what is, what is hoped for, meaning that we know that it is real and true. It will happen, though we do not see it. And we know it to be the case because God has revealed it. As we said, every promise made is a promise kept. And this saving faith produces good works. 
to where we believe and therefore obey in response to God's love for us. Habakkuk, the Lord tells Habakkuk that the righteous one will live by faith. Notice that he didn't say the righteous one will live by feelings. It's not that I don't feel like obeying, so I won't. It's not that God doesn't love me. I don't feel like God loves me, so he doesn't. That is not how the righteous live. Our feelings may be real, but they ain't true always. And they don't stand over Scripture. Instead, we walk by faith. In fact, because we know that we're fallen, we are not to trust ourselves or our feelings. But we trust God's word. And so the righteous one will live by faith, but also the righteous one, he does not live by his sight. You see, our views are limited just like Habakkuk's. We are finite beings. We don't see everything. Instead, we don't walk by what we see. Instead, we walk by faith in God's revelation of his promises as he has disclosed himself. Walking by faith looks like to know that though the circumstances might not be good, we know that God is. We know that he hasn't changed and that he is good to us and that he loves us. Walking by faith means that we trust and submit to God's sovereignty, sovereignty though we are perplexed by his ways. Walking by faith looks like though we may struggle and stumble, by God's grace we will repent and trust Jesus and continue to follow him. Walking by faith means that at times we confess our doubts. But we confess, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, give me grace and strength to persevere. Walking by faith is how we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How we can have real grief in our suffering and yet have real joy amidst our pain because our hope is in Jesus Christ. Walking by faith means that we know that what we see and experience isn't how things will remain forever. It is to know that a change is going to come and that we are one day closer because God has revealed how all things will be in the end. I'll close with Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 5, where he testifies how everything will be in the end. Which says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. The one, then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. He also said, write. Because these words are faithful and true. Beloved, we are closer to that being our eternal reality. It will certainly come and not be late. 
It will come when our Savior comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven.